Hey, everybody. Alex Shaw with the Risk Matters podcast, uh, partnered up with my colleague down in the Greensboro office, Jacob Dahlin, and then the Dos Equis man, the most interesting man in the world, Darren Carr. So we'll leave it at that. We won't provide any more context or detail on who he is. We'll allow that to make itself clear. Darren, hey, good morning. Thanks for spending some time with us. Good morning, Alex. It's great to be here um, with Jacob and I feel like I need to be on a beer commercial or something since I'm the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> so work on the mustache too. Yeah. So to put things a little bit uh, in context, Alex, uh, we're sitting here in front of the computer in uh, the small conference room in Greensboro. You're up in Richmond. We're doing this via Zoom. And uh, Darren and I are sitting here with a good cup of coffee. Mine, dark roast, all black. Darren, a little bit uh, pale in my uh, in my uh, opinion, but uh, we all have different flavors here. So, what I thought, you know, when we were talking about, you know, who's good on the podcast and working with Brett as well, and and Darren is uh, a guy that I've got to know in the last, gosh, eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, originally, uh, our first meeting, I think, was. Uh, when you were at CGR products. Right. And it may have been, I may have met you in my prior life too, but, um, but I think that was our, um, our first meeting. So um, why don't we start Darren, um, since you were the kind of plant manager, general manager at CGR and longtime Scott client, why don't we start by, I think a lot of people want to know, well, who is Darren Carr? (laughs) And, And as a person, first of all, yeah, absolutely. Um, so as a person, um, I'm married. I have two grown sons. I have uh, my wife and I now have custody of three of our grandkids, three of our five grandkids, and we have for the last four years, which uh, means we just started all over again. So we <laughs> went from empty nesters back to uh, full um, nest. Yeah, full nest, wow. um, which has uh, been a little bit crazy over the last four years, but uh, excited about that. I've been in uh, manufacturing leadership for 37 years um, in all kinds of industry, automotive, textiles, furniture, uh, aerospace, uh, assembly, die cutting. I uh, am am now currently semi-retired, doing doing a little bit of consulting, but uh, uh, wanted to spend a lot more time uh, with the kids and be able to do some different things. So excited about that. I've uh, really, really excited about uh, today and talking about one of the things that I love about leadership, which is uh, employees, employee engagement, and and uh, how important people are. Darren, if, if you wouldn't mind, let's step back maybe even a little bit further. Where where did you grow up, and what was your upbringing like? Because I think um, I think there's a lot of influence from the early years that manifests. And, and how we engage our professional life, at least in my experience. And so I'm interested as we get to know you and your style of leadership and management. Um, sometimes we learn by seeing what we, we like and we celebrate what we enjoy and, and the leadership we've received. And, and, uh, and, and so we pursue that direction. And, and other times we, maybe not so much, and we go, man, I'm gonna go the complete opposite direction. So tell me a little bit upbringing and then early experiences. Well, um, sure. So I was, uh, 
I was fortunate enough to be in a fantastic family um, with two wonderful parents. I'm the fourth of five kids. Um, I, I, uh, my mom and dad both, my, my mom passed away two years ago. My dad's uh, still alive. He's 88 and, and extremely vibrant. Um, played golf with him this past Friday. Um, probably the man that I most want to emulate. Um, growing up, we, we lived a number of different places, not because my dad, people ask me all the time, was your dad in the military? No, he was uh, in manufacturing leadership, um, mostly in the chemical industry. And uh, dad uh, was, was uh, in all kinds of roles, but mostly in plant management um, throughout much of his life. And I uh, got to see my dad firsthand not only have an extremely strong work ethic, but uh, a tremendous tie to his family and commitment to his family. And uh, my dad was just who I wanted to be. Uh, I had to follow three siblings that were uh, more perfect than I was, or the middle child, my brother Randall, um, growing up, never had a cavity, never had a hair out of place, matured early, all-state quarterback two years in a row, uh, dated older girls in high school, and I had to follow him in school. He, he had a uh, eidetic memory. Uh, I've got a brother just like this. Yeah, <laughs> I know how you feel. Yeah. And no I'd have braces. Yeah. I'd have teachers and coaches say, well, why can't you be more like your brother? Of course, I was a smart aleck, and I'd say, well, why couldn't you be a lot more like my last teacher? Anyway. <laughs> um, but um, I had a wonderful childhood. Uh, can't imagine anything any, any different. Um, and so I went off to uh, school. I went to the real University of Virginia, uh, Virginia Tech. Not, not, oh, gosh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not, not some school in Charlottesville that uh, uh, pretends to be the university. But anyway, that's okay. Um, um, we I'm laughing here. My my face is turning red and and I'm laughing because I'm. Uh, That's okay. I understand you. Did you tee him up on that one? <laughs> no, no, completely unscripted. But I did tell him that you went to UVA. Yeah, which is uh, it, it is a good place to get an education if you don't want to learn much. But anyway, <laughs> um, no, just, uh, kidding about that. But I had a wonderful childhood. Um, you know, went off to college and because that's what you were supposed to do, and I had no idea what I wanted to be. Uh, other than I think I wanted to be in manufacturing and uh, got a degree in chemistry from Virginia Tech and I didn't want to sit in a lab and do uh, chemistry work but uh, uh, got my first job in, in textiles and it, with Millican and Company down in South Carolina which is where I met my wife and uh, um, man a long time ago so. Darren I, so one of the things that you said among the many that caught my um, interest was that, that your father was a, uh, in manufacturing and in leadership and traveled around a lot. It reminds me of my grandfather, who is, my dad would always say was, was a factory man, um, except his, his conceptualization of, of life, the way he framed it was the job comes first and the family comes second. And I think that's, that's relatively indicative of that era, maybe. Yeah. Um, sure. So I'm interested in, in your dad perhaps being a little bit 
before his time in some sense. It sounds like he was a leader in the home and, and a man to be admired that put his family first um, in many regards. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, uh, I'll give you a prime example of that. So dad, when I was one, two, three years old, again, I was the fourth of five kids and um, my dad was working in Parisburg, Virginia uh, at a company called Selenese, made fiber, still, still there to this day, making uh, uh, cellulose fibers that go in the, um, in, in filters for cigarettes. Um, but as he was working for Selenese, he started, um, we lived right beside of a country club and he started playing golf a little bit. And uh, my dad realized very early on that he couldn't play golf and be an effective um, manager in a chemical company and be a good family man all at the same time. So dad didn't pursue golf and my dad didn't really take up golf again until he was in his late sixties. And uh, um, you know, that was the kind of sacrifice that, that somebody that has a busy family and a busy job um, does when they need to uh, prioritize things right. Hmm. That's a, that's a, a powerful example. And um, one that, as I mentioned, it, it sounds like potentially you took that direction. Um, you know, as, as I mentioned, there are styles of leadership we observe and we run away from, and there are styles of leadership we observe and we run towards. Um, so tell me a little bit about your genesis as a, you know, you talked a little bit about your background and, now I want to get into the nuts and bolts of, of how you lead people. You know, manufacturing from a risk perspective is interesting to me because when I talk to construction clients and there are folks who operate in what I would contend are much more highly variable environments, less consistent environments. And there's an upside to that, but you have less boredom and complacency, I would argue, mm -hmm. relative to those in manufacturing, because while the process is repeatable and often it's, you know, over and over, there's a, there is a bit of complacency would be my sense. And I'm interested in your take on that perspective, if you agree or disagree, and then how you navigate leading people in an environment where maybe at times they kind of almost, you don't want to say fall asleep on the job, but it, it's easy to kind of get distracted with just kind of going through the motions. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I'm not positive how exactly I got here. Um, it, it, with this mentality, because even though it's sort of been around for a while, it really has not um, taken a great foothold until probably the 90s. But, you know, almost all leaders, almost all CEOs and executives and, and leaders of companies would say that their people are important. The problem is we make decisions every day that say people are not important. Right. It's it's uh, we base it on we base it on immediate numbers and we base it on immediate metrics as opposed to uh, um, long term benefit. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I came to the conclusion at some point in time and I don't know when exactly this was. It could have been a combination of things, but that absolutely positively we have to find ways of getting out of the mindset that we as leaders are responsible for results, which may sound ridiculous, but 
We're not responsible for results. We're responsible for people who are responsible for results. And, uh, and that mindset is very, very, very simple, um, but also extremely difficult to pull off uh, because it requires us to think a totally different way. Um, it, it can be very mundane in a manufacturing um, environment if we don't allow people to be creative. Uh, we, we have to find means and ways of getting people extremely comfortable with throwing up their hands, raising a flag and saying, I don't fully understand why I'm doing this, or I don't, uh, I, I'm, I'm not able to get this done, or I'm having a bad day at home, right? There's some stuff going on at home and uh, it's affecting me at work. If we become, if we allow people to get that vulnerable, that's when we have a workforce that uh, is excited about coming to work every day. I've always said, if you're not excited about where you're driving to work every day, um, then you need to find something else to do. And um, I think we as leaders need to create a culture that allows people to be that vulnerable. So uh, let me jump in here a little bit, because I think that Alex, you and I, through the years, we've heard this phrase all the time. And, and Darren, you, you chime in what your thoughts are here, but you know we hear it all the time about our employees are our biggest asset, right? <laughs> And it's a cliche and we hear it all the time, but then when you peel back the layers, um, what you're saying is that, that the actions are not, not often um, saying that or showing that. Yeah, right? let, let me give you an example of that. So um, Alex, I don't know much about what your job role is, but do you have, do you have people that report to you? On, on, on some degree, yeah. Okay, and uh, I'm assuming, considering you're a pretty successful uh, fellow, that you have some kind of to-do list or task list that you uh, keep track of on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, right? He's holding up his uh, yeah. notepad. Yeah, yeah, I see it. One column is for home and one column is for work. Okay, so how many of those things involve people? And I'm talking about your connection with people, your involvement with people, your development of people your coaching of people? I'd say about roughly 30 to 40% of them. Oh, that's fantastic. I can tell you that probably most executives don't have that. They have a to-do list that says, you know, make sure I get this Excel spreadsheet done, make sure that I get these numbers crunched and make sure that I look at these statistics and they don't involve the actual development of their people. So they can say that all day long. Yeah, my people are my biggest asset. But when we make statements like I had, a, I had an owner of a company one time make this statement, you know, this whole engagement stuff, we need to stop focusing on our, on, on our associates and we need to focus on our customers. Well, <laughs> how do you think you focus on your customers if you don't put your people first? Because your people are who take care of your customers, right? Yeah. So I'm interested because, you know, as I look at this list, we, we counsel clients a fair amount on the risk of over-engineering culture. And yeah. I'm a big fan of the basics and the fundamentals. And I'm a big believer that the greatest currency you, currency you can provide your employees is, is time and attention. And so on my list, some of these things, you know, you could say 
maybe it's not fair to say 30 or 40% because it's not overtly having to do with development, but it's a call Abigail, right? It's, it's these, make sure you, you touch people, you know, you reach yeah. out, you see how they're doing. And you, I mean, that's what employee, that's what engagement is, right? It, it, yeah. It's just, it's just spending time with people. And I think I'd be interested in um, how you engage employees when it's beyond, let's say 50, a hundred, because I, I see folks who get overwhelmed who say, man, we've got 2000 employees, we've got 6,000 employees. And it, it's just, we're never going to get in touch with everybody. So I feel overwhelmed at the idea of even starting. And mm. what do you have to say to that? And, and what was your approach in, in your professional life in engaging people when it felt overwhelming by the, just the sheer number of employees that you would potentially have to engage? Yeah, well, psychologists would tell us that, you know, we cannot even remotely affect more than about 150 people. Dunbar's uh, number, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and because of that, it is easily to get overwhelmed when there's two, when there's 2000 people in, in your organization or 200,000 people in your organization. However, most leaders have a direct staff of six, eight, 10 people. And, and those have six or eight, 10 people or three or four people. Um, so we have to, we, we have to, not only hire well, but create an environment where those people that we touch and affect can in turn, turn around and touch and affect, spend time with the people that directly report with them, to them or that they directly work with. Now that doesn't mean that uh, a leader or a CEO of a company that's got 400 people in it doesn't ever spend time connecting with the person three or four levels down in their organization because they do need to do that occasionally. Um, it, is, it is vital that people on a manufacturing floor or on a, a construction work site know that their ultimate leader does truly care about them. And uh, there's so many different ways to do that, but it's a it's basically a step down system. You've got to have, and here's one of the troubles, right? Who do we promote as leaders and put them in a rank that says they now are supposed to lead? And then we call them, you know, a manager. We take people that are fantastic at sales and because they're good at sales, we make them a sales manager. Well, part of the problem is we call them a manager as opposed to a sales leader. Um, and they don't know how to deal with people because just because they were a great salesperson. And, uh, so, it, so we don't do a very good job most of the time, right? I mean, UVA, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding you. UVA is a great university and I'm sure you got a fantastic education, but what did you learn about employee engagement and, uh, leadership when you were at UVA? Oh gosh, that this could take me down a rabbit hole of why I should have just gone into the workforce instead of going to go to college. <laughs> I learned the lawn, um, you know. No, I'm just kidding. The the the, uh, the grounds, but no, I I wouldn't say overtly outside of observation. Um, there wasn't necessarily. 
necessarily a course I took that was designed based on that. Right. I mean, if you define a leader, a leader is somebody that has people following them. Well, the way you get people to follow them is, is you build trust and you build understanding and you build caring and they truly know that, that you care about them. I, my, one of the statements my dad made, and I've read it multiple times and heard it in different, different ways. I don't know who originally said this, but nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm. And, uh, you know, I can spout off all kinds of facts and reasons, but until somebody knows that I care about them, they, they really could care less about how much I know. So let me let me stop you right there because yeah. I think let's dig dig down a little bit in that because I think it's an important part. All right, in in practicum, yeah, what is that? It's easy to say I care about you, mm-hmm. right? And you have a new employee that comes in a manufacturing environment, and they they're going to kind of adapt to the surroundings, and they're they're going to come with a different background. Mm-hmm. But how do you know what is what does caring look like? What does it feel like? Well, I'm going to turn that around a little bit. Okay. You're married. Jacob, I am. Right? Yeah. Uh, does your wife love you? That, I, that's I, she, Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she, oh. I can guarantee she loves him, but I don't know how much she likes him. <laughs> I understand that. I've been married for uh, 36 years now, so I fully, completely understand that. Yeah, so I've been married 22 years. So, yes. How, she, do, you know, how do you know she loves you? Uh, with the words of affirmation and love. Okay. So, so you've obviously stated the five love languages <laughs> and, and, and uh, get, get uh, the whole meaning of, of communicating in, in the means of what love means to you. Um, but it's the same way. We, we all react different um, to different types of ways that people care. Um, Alex, I understand that you do some whitewater rafting guiding. I do. It was out yesterday morning at 5 a.m. in and, the dark. Uh, do you do that as a, as a paid guide? I, I used to, but now it's just for fun. I take friends and neighbors. Out. Okay. So when you did it as a paid guide, where did you do it? On the uh, James River and, and sometimes on the New River in West Virginia. Oh, you were up on the New River, up in the New River Gorge. That's right. Uh, so you're getting paid as a whitewater guide. You have a few minutes to build trust in this team of people that are now in the boat with you. How do you do that? How do you build a belief that when you tell them to draw right or to paddle on the right side, that they're going to do that as a team? How do you build that trust? Born a, a little bit of an introduction, presenting yourself with confidence, and then by uh, providing providing them enough information so that they, they can tell you're competent and credible, but not as many guys do going overboard and creating uh, fear through maybe more information than, than, nece- than is necessary. You, and you cater it to the specific, you know, you got a bunch of sons who take their mom out for Mother's Day, even though the last time they took her, she almost drowned. And for some reason, they thought it'd be a good idea to take her again. Well, you know, I, I, place them in positions on the raft where I know based on the rapids we're going to run, they're less likely to fall out. I put them where they're within an arm's reach and I tell them and make sure they know throughout the trip that I'm right here. You know, I've got a hand on the shoulder and I touch them every once in a while when we hit something big so that they know I'm right there. So I'm staying close to them. 
That's fantastic. So you put them in a place where they can succeed and you, you are throughout the trip consistently just with little actions and little motions saying, I'm here, I've got this, we're going to be okay. Yep. That's what trust and leadership is all about. And, and, uh, you know, it, it, it looks different in so many different ways. I would, I would, uh, I've done things like, you know, and, and this is in smaller organizations, companies uh, that have, you know, 100, 150 people that uh, um, are, are the entire company. But I would spend time writing little personal cards to all 150 people. Now, I wouldn't do that all in one day, but I would, I would you know, do five or 10 a week, mm-hmm. right? Just a just a card, something specific about them. I sent it in the mail. Nobody gets mail anymore, right? They get emails and text messages and that kind of thing. But it's sort of special when you get something in the mail. Um, so, and you know what? That didn't do it for everybody. It did it for some people. Um, saying good morning, actually listening when you ask the question, "How are you doing?" Mm. Uh, being able to read that somebody that something's not right with somebody, um, uh, treating them like you would want to be treated, right? They need to take care of something. Allow them to go take care of that, as opposed to it weighing on them for the next two days because they can't get off work um, and they're about to lose their car. Darren, as we as we round this out towards the end you know, if you've been a part of a captive group and you're listening, many of you have seen Chad Hymas and he does an exercise during each one of his talks where he has a member of the audience, give him their phone. And then he says, what's your wife's name? And then he looks up the wife's name and he enters in a text message, something along the lines of conferences going great, miss you and, you know, and the kids tremendously can't wait to get home, love you with all I've got. And then, and then we all as a group wait to hear what the the folks say back. Um, and I love that little exercise because he, he, it's a little touch point of something out of the ordinary that says, hey, I care about you. Um, maybe a bit of homework for folks who are listening today in that vein. Um, Darren, what would be your version of taking the cell phone in a conference and having a text message sent out? What, what would you encourage people to do today, whether it's with their employees or let's say just from a generalized holistic quality of life perspective? For their spouses, their kids, their loved ones, what would be your maybe small touch point that you would encourage people to to try today? How about act like you're dating again? So, you know, think about the energy and effort we put into dating our spouse when we were dating, Mm. right? We, We prepared ourselves better. We um, made ourselves look as good as we possibly can. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at uh, a picture of myself and two other men that, uh, you know, there's only so much that we could do to make that work. But, you know, we put in the energy and effort. Uh, engagement is so simple, but extremely difficult because we, it, it it goes against the grain of so much of what has been taught. And, and we have to put ourselves out there. We have to communicate 
and work at relationships. It's something that happens on a daily, ongoing basis. But if I summed it up in one word, act like you were dating. And that, goes, that goes with your spouse, that goes with your kids, and it certainly goes with the people you rub shoulders with every single day. You know, let's put our best foot forward. Let's act like we were trying to get on their good side. And maybe Jacob's wife will not only love him again, but like him as well. <laughs> so I've, I've got just one or two thought, thoughts on that. Um, and, and we've said for a long time, and this is typically stated in the, in the framework of, of compliance versus managing risk, true risk. Um, and so we say the more you do begets more of that thing. And so if you are super into compliance, you're going to do more compliance and more compliance. And if you paid attention to any of Conklin's work, what we know is more compliance doesn't always equal more safety. In the context of culture and engaging employees, the more you engage people, the more of that thing it begets. And, and then as an overlay on top of that, I'd say decisions compound and actions compound. And they, they compound in a positive direction and unfortunately also in a negative. And so the more you engage your people and, and you treat them like you're dating again, you're courting them in the interview process, um, the more positive and benefit comes out of that. And then multiples and exponents come off of that. that you can't even measure, but that's a little bit of what culture is. And that's what I'm hearing from you. And so I really appreciate you leading the conversation in, in the directions you've taken it today and with your responses. Um, Jacob, any thoughts from you on a closing basis or otherwise? No, great stuff. And, and, and certainly an area uh, that is timely. And, and we have a lot of people that, that are interested in this. And they really, frankly, they struggle about the area of, um, you know, how do I engage my workforce? How do I get people involved? How do I get, uh, get through and, and blend the layers from the hourly employee all the way up to senior executive level? And, and, and make those lines a little uh, less strict, right? So, uh, Darren, um, you know, since you are now kind of, this is going to sound like a public, public uh, endorsement, and it is. I mean, I do think that there's a lot of people that can, can that struggle with this. And, and so if they wanted to get in touch with you, um, and it, certainly you can, contact Alex or myself or Brett Greaves and, and we can, you know, if you need help uh, as a, as a business owner or, um, and, and just want to chat with, with Darren, come out and spend some time. Uh, now when you're, you know, semi-retired and out there and, and can help companies, what's the best way to, for people to get in touch with you? Hmm. Well, um, that would be, you can, uh, you can call me, text me, number is 336-404-0741. I'm actually working on a website right now. Um, but uh, let, let me make one comment to what Alex said. He said, you know, it's not, it's not very measurable. And it's not short term, but it's extremely measurable long term. Mm. Right? I mean... Uh, we've all three been married for a period of time and, and it, it, the measurement comes in all the normal measurements, all the normal metrics that a company looks at, all the normal KPIs, they're all affected positively by an engaged workforce. People that wouldn't leave you for any reason, they'll follow you to the ends of the earth. 
And we all know people like that because they fully trust us and believe that they have it. I mean, according to Forbes, it's an emotional commitment to an organization and its goals. That's what engagement is. It's not happiness or it's not even employee satisfaction, but it's somebody that is committed to the goals and committed to a company because they trust the leadership. And that's what, that's what engagement's all about. Darren, thank you again. And Jacob, thank you. And for everybody listening in, we appreciate it. Hope you have a great week and we will catch you next time. Mm -hmm.